Welcome to episode 125 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, have you experimented with low carb or the keto diet, and maybe had some energy or digestive issues to go along with that? Well, the team at Bioptimizers have got you covered. One of their founders, Matt Gallant, has done keto for over 26 years, but he personally experienced some digestive issues and also found some of his clients didn't get that promised epic energy or experienced elevated triglycerides. So Matt and the team did a ton of research and real-world testing to create the perfect combination of nutrients for optimizing fat digestion, energy metabolism, and fat loss enhancement. It's called Capex, and it upgrades the way your body and cells function on a keto diet. Every ingredient performs a critical role. For starters, Capex helps you break down the fat you eat into tiny fatty acids. Second, it assists in the transport of those fatty acids to your liver and your mitochondria so they can be burned up at an accelerated rate. And third, by enhancing digestion and metabolic energy and function, Capex helps you smash through any fat loss plateaus. Other ingredients in Capex can also help lower inflammation, boost cardiovascular health, regulate cholesterol, and so much more. Capex can bring you epic energy with no crashes, jitters, or adrenal burnout. They do have a 365-day unconditional money-back guarantee. So if it doesn't work for you, no worries, you'll get your money back. And of course, we have a special offer just for our listeners. If you go to kenergize.com forward slash ifpodcast and use the code ifpodcastkx at checkout, you'll get 20% off any package. That's K-E-N-E-R-G-I-Z-E dot com forward slash IF podcast with the coupon code IF podcast KX for 20% off any package. I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 125 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am fabulous, still packing, one week to closing. Oh my gosh, the stuff just keeps coming. (laughs) I know, it's like all these things you didn't even realize you had. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just found something today that I blamed my son for losing about five years ago. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, there it is. I remember when we were little, my mom had this really expensive, do you know Yardro statues? Is that like a thing? It's, it's two L's. Does it start with two L's? I'm not sure. She would always like say the name like it was a thing. So I assumed it was a thing. 
I don't know. She had a really nice expensive one and it got broken. And my sister said my brother did it and he got like in massive trouble. And then like 10 years later, she confessed that it was... It was actually her. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like stuff probably happens like that all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Oops. Well, I hope it all... I mean, it'll have to all come together, I guess, with your moving... I mean, you know, we'll be fine. The movers are coming on on the 28th and then, um, which is actually prior to this podcast coming out. So I'll already be moved by the time this podcast comes out. So anyway, yeah, the movers are coming and they'll come and move stuff and it'll all be good. Hey, I have the essential things. I have the internet installation scheduled and also our Dish Network (laughs) installation scheduled. So we may not have a bed to sleep in, but we'll be watching TV and (laughs) recording the podcast. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So what's up with you? There's a lot of things. My new show is going really well, so I'm really excited. And I did, I changed the name, although this will have happened a long time ago by the time this airs, but now it's the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I love that name change so much. I mean, now it just seems obvious to me because I need something in the title so that people who aren't familiar will know what it's all about. And that's really what it's all about, so... Well, you know, when it when it when it comes to you, you're like, oh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just how it works. And then it's perfect and you can't imagine that wasn't what it was all along. Yep. So I'm super happy. And then to start things off, I actually did want to address, you know how we had that conversation, I don't know, a few podcasts back about how easily carbs are turned into fat? Right. So we talked about it briefly, like basically that there's not an efficient transfer mechanism for carbohydrates to turn to fat. So when you gain weight from carbohydrates, it's more likely because carbohydrates are affecting your insulin production or your fat storage, and then you're actually gaining weight from the fat. And we had that episode, and that actually sparked a lot of conversation in my Facebook group, which everybody should join, by the way. It's Paleo One Meal Day Biohackers at the moment. (laughs) That's the title. People wanted more scientific information based on that. So I did a lot of research and I just wanted to provide some resources for people. So if you go to the show notes for today's episode, which will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 125, I'll put some links there. So for example, some of the studies, there's one called No Common Energy Currency, De Novo Lipogenesis as the Road Less Traveled. Such a romantic name for a scientific journal. (laughs) Oh yeah. Then there's another one called de novo lipogenesis and metabolic homeostasis, more friend than foe, question mark. And to clarify, so de novo lipogenesis means the creation of new fat. And so it's referring to the idea of typically the liver creating fat from carbohydrates. And then there's also, I found a really nice, I know it's a blog post, (laughs) but it's on paleoleap.com and It's called The Science of Turning Carbs to Fat, De Novo Lipogenesis, and How It Works. So I'll put a link to all of that if you'd like more information about all of that. I'm not going to go into a crazy explanation of it right now. But basically, the takeaway is that when they do multiple studies with overfeeding and looking at different substrates, they pretty much consistently find that the conversion pathway for carbohydrates to fat in the liver is it's very inefficient. It doesn't account for any, even in massive overfeeding situations, 
any significant weight gain. For example, they did one overfeeding study. So they basically had four days with a high calorie diet. And in that study, the participants took in 360 to 390, so almost 400 grams of carbohydrates. And that only resulted in three to eight grams of fat produced compared to 60 to 75 grams of body fat stored. And this was in a situation where they're actually taking in excess calories, like trying to store excess fat, trying to upregulate that pathway. And so they, you know, gained around 75 grams of fat, but only, I mean, at the minimum, only three grams of that was from carbs at the maximum eight grams was from carbs. But from what you can see from that is, you know, most of it was coming from fat, not from the carbs. Right. And so, yeah. So like, just to say it again, basically the the pathway is very inefficient. So what's going on when you're gaining weight with carbs is, you know, at the same time, you're probably taking in a lot of calories from fat as well. So those get stored. The carbs can also obviously cause your insulin to rise. So you're in more of a fat storage mode. And then at the same time, they might block you from burning fat. But I just wanted to clarify that and I wanted to provide some scientific resources. So definitely check out those studies because they're very fascinating and they go into a lot more detail. Yeah, that really is a good point because you hear people say things like, if you overeat carbs, every bit of them goes straight to fat. And that's not it. You know, if you overeat anything, that's not a good plan. But (laughs) it's not the carbs themselves. It's the fat you eat with the carbs. Yep, exactly. That are being stored very easily as fat. I mean, because think about it, at the extreme situation in that study, taking in 400 grams of carbs and four grams became fat. (laughs) So, I mean, and that's in an overfeeding situation. But there's a lot of other studies. I read an overfeeding study a, a few weeks ago that talked about overfeeding fat versus overfeeding carbs. And the overfeeding carbs caused the metabolic rate to increase as a result. Your body's trying to burn them off. Whereas overfeeding with the fat, it was very easy to store the fat. And I just thought that was, you know, it's such a good point. Yeah, exactly. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that in one of our questions coming up as well. Can I tell you something else really random I learned this week? I would love to hear something random. So I'm currently reading the first book that has actually convinced me to start meditation, which I know that sounds crazy coming from me because I'm all about mindset and how your thoughts affect your reality. But every time I've tried any sort of meditation, it's just, I've just not connected. I've tried apps. I've tried, I've tried so many things. Have you ever meditated, Jen? Or do you meditate? Yes. I have a friend and I do great meditating with this friend. She has a a very strong meditation practice and she's a teacher. And sometimes during the summer, she'll come over and we'll meditate. This summer I've been very busy, so we missed it. Now she's back to work. Do you like use apps or anything like that? She has some guided type things that she always brings. She's always in charge of that. (laughs) She'd be like, here's a really good one. This was great. Let's try this one. And yeah, I have done like guided ones, but I never really like connected with any of them. But right now I'm reading on Audible, my favorite, which I will put a link to the show notes, by the way, if you're not on Audible, so that you can get a month for free and get a free book and get this book if you like. But it's called Stress Less, Accomplish More by Emily Fletcher. Have you heard of it? I've not heard of that one. No. It's amazing. It's basically, it's supposed to be like the meditation for like, not that everybody's not like this, but the productive, like busy person who doesn't have time for meditation, but her perspective is just so amazing and freeing. And she's all about how 
she thinks meditation is misconstrued in society. Like there's one right way to do it and you shouldn't have any thoughts and thoughts are bad. And she's all about how it's totally fine if you have thoughts while meditation. And she has all of these tips and tricks and she's so encouraging. And the first part of it really goes into the science of how meditation affects your your body and your brain. And I mean, she had me sold. <laughs> and her practice is, it's just two 15-minute practices per day. So I'm really excited. I'm going to start it. And I really want to try to get her on my new podcast. And she also said something I didn't know. She said that, which I need to research this, but she said that dopamine and serotonin, so feel-good chemicals, that they're actually alkalinizing in the body. I had never heard that before. Yeah, I haven't either, but that's cool. So now every time I have a happy thought, I'm like, oh, alkalinizing my body. (laughs) So (laughs) I am loving it. I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. Okay, awesome. I always plan to develop a meditation practice and then I never do. Same, but I feel like I feel like this is going to do it for me. And if it does, that will be very telling. So I'm at two days in a row now, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. And it's also, long story short, her method is basically, it's like two minutes of this breathing, come to your senses thing. Then it's like 13 minutes or so of the meditation, which is basically just repeating a mantra. And then it's like a two-minute exercise where you think of something you're grateful for, then you envision a goal or a dream that you want, but you imagine that it's happening right now because the brain doesn't actually understand the difference between something that you're imagining happening versus actually happening. So you can, if you imagine something you want is happening right now, you can get the same physiological effects and like the beneficial effects on your body just from imagining that. And then- you end with how you would feel telling somebody about having achieved this this goal or this dream. So I'm pretty excited. Say the name of the book one more time. It's called Stress Less, Accomplish More. All right. Well, I like it. It is great. One other thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so I listened to an amazing podcast interview. It was... Is that the one you sent me? Yes, I sent it to you. I think you sent it to me. I was at the beach, so I didn't look. I was like, I don't have time. (laughs) But I was like, it's got to be good. (laughs) You've got to listen to this, Jen. It's just, it's golden. If anybody is really struggling with feeling bad while fasting, not necessarily just like hunger, but a lot of people, you know, will get symptoms like brain fog, fatigue. We had a question recently in a previous episode, which I actually want to amend my answer to a little bit, having listened to this podcast, itching, you know, just a lot of like unpleasant symptoms while fasting. It is quite possible that it's related to toxins in our cells. And I listened to this podcast episode on the Body Mind Empowerment episode podcast, and it was with Dr. Christopher Shade. And they went into so much detail. I didn't even know. I knew it was going to be about autophagy because that was in the title, but I didn't know he was going to go go into fasting as much as he did, which was absolutely wonderful. But basically the takeaway was that our fat cells, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, but they are reservoirs for toxins. The first part of that interview that he had, he basically went into the process of how detox works and how our detox systems are often overwhelmed. So our bodies store the toxins rather than 
excrete them. And so they are often stored in fat cells. So especially when we burn fat or especially with fasting, when we're burning that fat, we are releasing those toxins found in those fat cells, which puts them into the bloodstream. And what he explained was that, you know, the toxins, they go to the liver and then if the liver can't completely deal with them, they actually re-enter the bloodstream and cause problems. And that can manifest one of the first things he said was like itchy skin because then the toxins are coming out through your skin. So we had that question, remember Jen, about the the listener who was struggling with itching since starting fasting? Yep, I do. I really think this might be involved there with the toxins coming out of the skin. Another thing he talked about how one of the main things blocking detox as well is inflammation, which we are often in a high inflammatory state, and that can come from a lot of different things, including like endotoxin, so gut health, you know, everything we talk about here. And one of the things I loved, which Jen, you're going to love, they went into deep about fasting and autophagy, and he was saying how absolutely critical it was to have autophagy because he said that, so you have these fat cells. And if they're restoring toxins, it's quite possible that the mitochondria of those cells was damaged from the toxins. So he says, you burn the fat in these fat cells, and then what you're left with is basically a broken fat cell with a broken mitochondria. And so you need to get rid of these inflamed, broken fat cells. And he said, that's where autophagy comes in. So he was saying that fasting is absolutely key for not only getting rid of toxins, but having that autophagy to deal with those broken fat cells that are left over as a result of losing the fat. He is a developer of a detox support I've been wanting to try for a long time. It's called Push Catch. So I'm definitely going to get it now. But he was talking about all how important it is to support proper detox, especially when you're doing things like fasting. But he was a, a big advocate of fasting, a big advocate of autophagy. And then he, his theory was even that keto flu is often – not so much electrolytes, but could be reactions to this toxic situation. And one of the reasons that salt actually helps keto flu is because it slows down our detox pathways. So it stops that process. And then a reason that like water would be helping is because it's helping flush out toxins. But he had that theory. I mean, I don't personally think all keto flu is that. I think it's probably electrolytes as well, but it was a really fascinating um, perspective. And then he also, they had a conversation about Dr. Walter Longo and, you know, low protein diets for health and longevity, which we've talked about on here before. He was not so much a fan <laughs> in Dr. Christopher Shade. Of the fasting mimicking? Of not the fasting mimicking. They didn't really discuss that, but of the like the longevity approach involving like low protein. And they were saying that it would be much more adequate to have, you know, ample supportive amounts of protein and, you know, in an intermittent fasting type pattern. So yeah, it was fascinating. And then they, of course, then they ended with a conversation about CBD, which we talked about recently. And then at the very, yep. very end, now that I've told you guys like the whole episode, but guys, you have to listen. It's amazing. At the very end, um, the host asked him what was the most important thing for health or, you know, something like that. And after all of that, he said the most important thing was your mindset because- Oh, I love that. He said that regardless of all of these things, that all does come down to like your sympathetic, parasympathetic state and how your body is holding in stress or not holding in stress. And that that was all 
really has to do with your mind so that if, you know, regardless of all these things happening, if you're not, if you're still holding in stressors, if you're still holding in these potentially toxic thoughts, that that is going to shut off all of these systems or it's going to affect all these systems that could help you detox and could help you release these toxins. So it was wonderful. I don't think though that keto flu is detox because the whole time you're losing fat, you're detoxing. You know, if you think about it that way. And so it wouldn't make sense that you would only have that happen at the beginning. So I don't think that makes any sense for keto flu. Otherwise, it would continue. I think that keto flu is is your body not knowing where to get the fuel. So you feel awful because you haven't developed your fat burning efficiently yet. And your body's searching for quick energy. And I think that's what it is. That makes more sense. Otherwise, it would just keep going and going. Well, I think it could be a lot of things for different people. I think for some people, electrolytes, some people not fat adapted, some people toxins. But something to point out is he discussed, you know, well, A, when you first immediately jump into a detoxifying state, if you haven't been in that before, it's going to be most likely massively more overwhelming right at the beginning. And then he did have that whole discussion about how inflammation is one of the main things that is blocking the detox. So I would imagine that when you sustain the keto diet and you enter that fat burning mode and you enter a more anti-inflammatory state and things get better, that that would it would help massively. So I do think for a lot of, I don't think it's always the case and I don't think it's like ongoing necessarily, but I could see definitely how for some people keto flu could be a toxin, a detox reaction. All right. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not buying that one so strongly just because like I said, but um, you know. Well, cause kind of like when with intermittent fasting as well, you know, people might have detox type reactions in the beginning, but they don't keep going Yeah, I actually, some people do get some weird kind of things that pop up here and there. Like I've heard a theory about like, like maybe you'll be fine going along fine. You're for women, you know, your cycle is fine. And then you get down to a layer of fat, maybe that was where you were taking a certain birth control pill or something. And then that starts getting released. And then you have some weird cycle changes right then. So I I think of it like, you know, if you're on a fossil dig and you're like uncovering different layers of things, it's like you're coming back out. And, and there'll be a different one along the way based on when that was laid down, if that makes sense, that fat. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit in our first question. So I will put a link to that podcast in our Himalaya playlist. It's called Intermittent Fasting Podcast, Stuff We Like. For listeners, we are a Himalaya-partnered show. They're an amazing podcast network. They make an amazing app that I use every single day. You can create curated playlists in there. So we have one called Intermittent Fasting Podcast, Stuff I Like. So definitely check out that playlist and I'll put a link to that podcast there. And then also, if you follow our show in the Himalaya app, you will get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. Shall we jump into the questions? Yes. All right. So the first question comes from Catherine and the subject is weight set point theory. And Catherine says, hi, Melanie and Jen, love your podcast. Thank you for all the great information and guidance. Jen's One Meal a Day Facebook group and this podcast have been invaluable to me. I would like to know your thoughts on set point theory regarding weight, which basically proposes that every body is programmed to a certain weight range and will fight to stay within that range. It can also change the set point over time depending on various factors. For context, I tend to believe the set point theory. That said, I strongly believe I'm carrying excess weight, so I do want to lose weight with IF. 
However, at the same time, I don't want to fixate on it such that I feel like a failure when the scale doesn't move. On the other hand, I want to make sure I'm challenging myself and not using things like set point theory to not push myself. Hope this makes sense. Thanks in advance, Kat. P.S. I'm on day four of IF slash one meal a day. All right. Awesome. Thoughts on the set point theory, Jen? This is a great question, and it's one of those things that, quote, everybody knows, and yet when you try to find really good science of it, really, it's hard to find. You know, it's a lot of theory, a lot of people talking about it. You know, when you think about it just intuitively, we all know that our height, for example, has a genetic basis. You know, we are genetically programmed to be a certain height, and, you know, we don't get taller than that. But, you know, of course, if you had a pituitary tumor of some sort and you had excess growth hormone, you could grow taller. (laughs) You know, and if you had certain issues and problems, you could not grow as tall. So there are definitely things that regulate different things such as height. And we would tend to then say, of course, our weight is going to be genetic to a degree. You know, you look at families, you know, I have one son who is built exactly like my husband. You know, they've got the same lanky frame. They've got the same build. You know, my husband is built just like his dad. They both tend to carry their fat in the same areas. So there is definitely a genetic component to it. And if you are genetically programmed to carry your fat in different ways and to have, you know, your it's easier for your body to store fat and yeah, you know, that's the, there's going to be part of that. And so I guess that's part of the whole, you know, quote, set point. But on the flip side, if we were having a real famine with no food, I mean, like no food at all, and we were starving and there was nothing to eat, your body would release fat. So even though we might have a, a set point where our body likes to be and would, would keep us, you know, just in a normal, if we're eating within a certain range of, of calories, our body is going to keep us within this range. If you went low enough, you're going to lose that fat. I mean, nobody ever became overweight during a famine when there was no food at all to eat. Not that I would encourage you to <laughs> completely fast, but I do think that we can, I, I don't know if I, change our set point, but yes. You know, I think we can lower our, our body's set point and then our body becomes happy to stay in that range. It's, you know, it's it's the whole idea of homeostasis, that your body will fight to keep you within a range where it feels good. You know, and different things work together within our bodies to, to keep us in that range. But you can, you know, if you consistently overeat over time, for example, you can gain weight even though that's higher than your body's, quote, set point. Whereas if you, like I said, if you're in a famine and you aren't eating, you can get below it. So it's not as tightly regulated as like your height and things like that. You can, you know, I don't want you to, like you said, use it as a a way to not push yourself. But even so, I've lost a lot of weight and I'm, I'm small, but, you know, I still have the same thighs that, you know, (laughs) that's the genetic way I'm built. And I'm not going to change into a a lanky person like my husband and my son, Cal. It's not going to change the shape of me. It's not going to change my body completely. What do you think, Melanie? Were you able to find more science behind it than I was? I've looked for this before, and a lot of it's just theory. I did. (laughs) I did find some information. But, Jen, it is so true that there is not much information out there. Yeah, it really isn't. There's a a lot of theory, and a lot of people talk about it. But... They haven't been able to, I don't know. Tell us, tell me what you found. (laughs) 
Okay. So before I go into the actual set point theory, first, I want to talk a little bit about fat cells themselves, because this relates to the conversation we were having, you know, just a second ago, because there's this idea out there that you're, you have a certain amount of fat cells and that that never changes. Right. We've heard that theory. Yeah. Yeah. And that's basically the predominant theory. And so I did some research on it and there have been some recent developments where they found some interesting things about how fat cells work in the body and the turnover rate and such, because there's this irony because fat cells, even people who have liposuction where they're having their fat cells removed, they still end up with the same amount of fat cells, which is very fascinating. And I was reading one article and the doctor was saying that it just doesn't really make sense because he said, if you cut out a fatty tumor, the fat doesn't grow back. But why, when you cut out fat, like, why is it different? They don't really know that, but they have done some fascinating studies to evaluate basically the lifespan of fat cells. And the way they did it is absolutely fascinating. So basically thanks to above ground nuclear bomb testing that happened between 1955 and 1963, it created a carbon isotope called C14 in the atmosphere. And that actually made its way down into the environment. And then people ate, you know, plants and the meats that ate those plants. And the result was that the C14 was actually incorporated into the human DNA and into fat cells. And then after that period stopped with the nuclear testing, there were less amounts of C14 in the atmosphere and thus less amounts in the fat cells. And what that means is that people's fat cells serve as a sort of time capsule because if you look at the um, amount of, it's like carbon dating. Yeah. Just like I said with the fossil dig. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The amount of C14 in the fat cells shows how old the fat cells are, which is absolutely Very, very fascinating. So what some researchers did is they actually took 35 people who were fat and lean, who had had liposuction or abdominal wall reconstruction, and they looked at the C14 dating in the cells to see how old the cells were and to find out what was actually going on. They found that indeed the number being born of fat cells did equal the amount dying, like the, the amount stayed consistent, although there was about a 10% turnover rate each year. So each year, about 10% of your fat cells do quote die, but they are replaced. And what I'm hoping now to tie it into our earlier conversation as well, I'm hopefully the body can lose those fat cells, you know, with those damaged mitochondria and make, you know, fresh fat cells. But I mean, I have no idea which ones die and which ones are replaced. That said, I do, I find it fascinating that that happens because I'm just trying to wrap my mind around how I, and maybe they haven't actually studied this, so it might not be relevant because this is, I guess, with people, you know, I assuming people are not following fasting. Right. So like, I imagine it could be different if if you do lose 10%, but then if you're following some sort of dietary protocol like fasting, you know, where you're not putting on excess weight and if anything, you're having autophagy or having fat burning, I don't know if it would be different, but it's very, very fascinating to say the least. Do you have thoughts on that, Jen? Well, like you said, I would be so interested to see what would happen in fasting 
Because I think that puts us in such a different state where our bodies are scrounging around. You know, we've talked about this before. You know, when a fat cell is emptied out and and autophagy is increased due to intermittent fasting, I wonder if that would have a different effect, a different, you know, ending to that fat cell. Your body would be like, yeah, I don't need that one anymore. So that would be an interesting study. But, uh, of course, we haven't seen those. (laughs) Yeah, I I really imagine it would. And I think it would. Something else it was talking about was... Basically, especially if you were overweight or obese as a child, you are set up, even losing the weight, given all of this information, you are set up to have more of a, I guess, you know, a a challenge throughout life with dealing with fat cells because, I mean, they're still sticking to this idea that your fat cells don't go away. So they're always there waiting to be filled up. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, like we said, we haven't seen studies really with this fat cell number and fasting. And I, I honestly think it's probably makes a big difference. That's just my opinion. Yeah. It, it would be interesting. We don't have it. We don't know, but I just know about my own body and I don't know. I feel like, you know, they do say that I don't know. This is a theory I've read. I can't remember where I read it exactly, but I remember reading that once you have been able to maintain loss for a certain amount of time, your body has that new set point that it wants to be at. And again, I don't know that this is actual, if there's like a scientific proof for it, if it's just anecdotal as opposed to, as you know, people who manage to maintain their weight for two years or whatever the length of time would be, they're just basing it on that, which is probably most likely. But that is really how I feel. You know, I feel like my body has settled in at a set point that that's a range where I don't have to really micromanage myself completely. You know, I can tell if I overdo it for a season or for a while or over the holidays, maybe my pants are a little tight. And then I just maybe tighten up for a week and then I'm back on the smaller end. And it seems really easy to dial it in. My body does not feel like it's trying to get back up to 210 pounds, for example. Yeah, exactly. I don't feel like I'm fighting against a a weight gain trend. And interestingly, the weight that I am maintaining right now I'm pretty sure it's the weight that I was in college or like right after high school or like even in high school. I feel like I'm that size. I mean, I'm probably a little shaped differently because I've had babies and that changes our bone structure and our pelvis to a degree. You know, it changes your ribs, you know, stretches everything out just a little bit. (laughs) But other than that, I feel like my body has like been reset back to what was a natural weight for me. And it's pretty easy to stay here. Yeah, that's one of the wonderful, wonderful things about intermittent fasting intermittent fasting for sure is is that and um Jen would you believe after all of that I haven't even I haven't even come to my my set point conversation yet that was just the fat cells okay <laughs> so I found a fantastic article there's so many articles by the way I'll be researching something and I'll be looking at things and I'll find something that's just amazing and I'm like why have I never seen this one before I know I know And it's not even new. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of articles. So I can't wait to hear this one because I've I've looked before and, you know, maybe I didn't use the right keywords. Oh, speaking of, guys, that was something I was going to say. Keywords are huge. (laughs) Once you figure out the keywords, you can really find things. That's what I meant to say. If you're interested in the the conversation we had at the beginning about carbs turning to fat, I made a list of keywords. Use keywords like de novo lipogenesis, conversion, fat, carbs, efficiency, That'll pull up a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's really good info. I also really love when the articles are recent. (laughs) Makes me so happy. 
So this was 2018. So relatively recent. And the article is called Recent Advances in Understanding Body Weight Homeostasis in Humans. See that? I didn't look for the word homeostasis. (laughs) That's the key. And it was published in F1000 Research, which is an online journal. Okay, Jen, are you ready? I'm so ready. I think I've spent about five hours reading this article and I deconstructed all of it. Fabulous. Hi guys. So as you know, I am all into biohacks for upgrading your health, performance, and just life in general. And what's one of my favorite biohacks in the world? That would have to be red light and near infrared therapy. We get so many amazing listener emails and feedback about red light therapy, but we also get questions about the science behind it. The reason red light and near-infrared therapy can seem to magically fix almost everything, sort of like intermittent fasting, is because it works on the level of the cells to actually change how the mitochondria generate energy. And when your cells are properly generating energy, well, everything just seems to work better. Red light can modulate blood flow and signaling pathways, it can discourage reactive oxygen species, and it can even activate stem cells. All of this can help the cells grow, repair, and regenerate. Red light has amazing anti-aging benefits. It can increase collagen production in the skin and make the skin healthier in the process. A 2005 study of 600 patients found that 90% reported a softening of their skin texture and a reduction in their roughness and fine lines. How about fat burning? Well, it turns out red light may actually break apart fat cells, so then they release their fatty acids into the bloodstream for use by the body. And since we're fasting around here, you can then burn off those fatty acids in the fasted state. Studies have also shown that red light may actually create metabolic changes which cause fat cells to undergo apoptosis, or cell death. A 2009 study of 67 patients undergoing treatment with red light for two weeks found they actually lost an average of 3.51 inches in their hips, waist, and thighs, and that was without any changes in diet or exercise. So imagine what happens when you pair it with intermittent fasting. Additionally, a 2012 double-blind controlled randomized study found that spot-treating upper arm fat with red light made a significant and progressive effect in reducing fat compared to not using it. So they say there's no such thing as targeted fat burning, but red light just may be the key to that. Red light, and especially near-infrared therapy, has also been shown to be amazing for pain and inflammation. One study found that red light therapy relieved pain in patients with arthritis by 70%. It may do this by increasing blood flow and circulation, stimulating tissue repair and healing, and even modulating wound healing by influencing mast cells, macrophages, and neutrophils. Near-infrared light may also enhance mood and be an effective treatment for depressive mood disorder. A 2005 double-blind randomized study looked at the effects of six sessions of near-infrared therapy in patients with moderate depression, and they found that their depression scores decreased with a 50% remission rate. There are a lot of, quote, red light therapy devices out there, but the specific wavelength is key. Juve makes red light and near-infrared therapy devices that can bring you all of these benefits. Researchers at Juve have made sure that the wavelengths in their devices are the exact wavelengths that you need to experience all of these benefits. They also have a complete money-back guarantee. And we do have a special offer. If you go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the code ifpodcast, you will receive a free gift from Juve. All right, now back to the show. So there are basically three prevailing theories about the body set point. 
The first one is that there is this set point and that it is influenced by how our organs and our tissues, so like our fat cells, are releasing hormones and how that's affecting our hypothalamus, which is, you know, part of our brain and it's regulating our body weight. So that's number one. The second one is a settling point. Yeah, I've heard that phrase before. Yeah, that's the idea that basically our metabolism just adjusts to our our weight changes, but there's actually no hormonal feedback involved, like no hormonal feedback from the tissues themselves. It's just like our metabolism adjusting. And then there's a third one, which is a, a dual intervention point, and it basically combines those two. And then this article actually proposed a fourth theory, which if the fourth theory is going on, I think it's actually very supportive of intermittent fasting. Their theory was that the control of our energy expenditure, so how many calories we're burning, you know, our metabolism basically, that it may be like the lowest point would be the lowest for survival. So whatever weight your body deems as for whatever reason, dipping below that weight would be like malnutrition, you know, so not surviving. And then the highest point would be the max mitochondrial energy capacity of the cells. So the point basically where the cells are just so saturated with energy that they, the mitochondria can't adequately generate energy. So that would be like the upper limit. The reason I say that is actually very awesome for fasting is that they said that with this, it's not actually about body weight per se. It's actually more about energy availability. So the way I was interpreting that was that, oh, if we're doing intermittent fasting where we're supporting our body with a fat burning mode where our cells are adequately nourished and not entering the starvation mode. We have plenty of energy available. Yeah. So we could maybe in a way that would be a way around the set point if that is what's going on there. So those are the theories. So I think I read that exact article. It sounds very familiar. Yeah, all that wording. I'll keep going. You can let me know because there's a lot of information in it. They went into the actual detail, like what is the set point? It's pretty actually complicated and vague. (laughs) So the set point, it involves both fat mass and then our fat free mass. So that's going to be, you know, like our glycogen stores and things like that. And then they noted that it's actually unclear because people typically assume that it's fat mass and fat free mass. But what about our organs? People kind of don't even talk about that. (laughs) So it's unclear if organs are involved in the body weight set point. Jen, here's a question for you. What is the only organ that does not lose weight with weight loss? Huh. Let me think. All right. Give me a minute. What organ would not lose weight with weight loss? Well, now I'm thinking, because see, if you're bigger, your heart needs to pump more. So not your heart. And Your liver, I know, can store a lot of fat, but I don't know. Does it change its size? Okay, this is tricky. Okay, I'm going to say your brain. You are correct. The brain is the only organ that does not lose weight. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) I thought that was a – I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. I never thought about that before. Well, because the others have to change to support your changing size. So your brain, though, is just doing its thing up there. And where is it going to expand? Nowhere. Your head would explode. (laughs) it's trapped in there. Well, I don't know about it getting bigger, but this was whether or not it loses weight. Yeah. I wouldn't expect your brain would lose weight. That would seem, I wouldn't expect that at all. So yeah, I'm glad I came up with it. I don't have the statistic right here, but I believe it's about 60%, 60 to 70% fat the brain is. So, but our brain is designed to like stay in a very tight, you know, like our body makes sure our brain gets what it needs. Yeah, exactly. 
I'll actually talk about that a little bit more in this conversation. But so the set point, other things that might be involved in what's controlling it are, you know, the brain, the hypothalamus, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, and also genetics, which I will go into a little bit more as well. Some interesting things about fat-free mass versus fat mass and how those change. So they do change independently of each other. So you're not going to lose, it's not like you lose them the exact same amount at the same time. And it's, and they think that different systems actually regulate weight loss from both of those. And this is something we talked about earlier, Jen, because you know how you were saying at the beginning about the metabolic boost from carbs. One thing they said, one thing they said in this study is that increased fat-free mass. So the glycogen stores, that is actually what drives increased resting energy expenditure. So that supports what you just said about how carbs are boosting metabolism. But typically when people experience weight gain, when they go on a calorie restricted diet, they are losing about 15 to 30% from fat-free mass. So like those carb stores and then about 70 to 85% from fat mass. But as for the question of what is controlling where we're losing that fat from and how our body responds hormonally. So like we said, the, the studies are very, very difficult because they are not easily controlled because even if you control the diet or the exercise, they can't control the actual hormonal response or anything like that. So it's there's just so many factors at play. And you know what? This is what's funny. I think this is why I came to the conclusion that we really just don't know because I think I read this exact study that you're or this exact paper that you're talking about and came away because I was trying to figure it out and working on my super secret project that I still can't talk about, but I was reading everything about it and I this sounds so familiar and I left it with the whole impression of we just really don't know, do we? Yep. <laughs> so it's what I that's basically <laughs> the takeaway of this article. Yeah. I thought it was a fantastic article and very fascinating and well written. And you can get a lot of stuff out of little nuances here and there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like I said, not easily tested, not easily controlled. Twin studies in general do tend to show similarities in set points, but it's not definitive. Bariatric surgery does seem to permanently reset weight, which is pretty interesting. And like in rodent studies, though, when they overfeed rats to gain weight, they tend to return to their previous weight when they're off of the diet. So yeah, things are complicated. And then as far as back to the control system, some things we do seem to see is that if your body weight is too low, like way too low, when put into an overfeeding situation, there doesn't seem to be any biological control to stop that overfeeding. So when you basically, I guess if you're malnourished or underweight and you go into an overfeeding situation, there's going to be a different response compared to being at a normal weight in overfeeding. The control systems also seem to be different between weight loss versus maintenance when it comes to the set point, but they didn't go into much much detail. They just said that it looked that it does pan out differently and that also the lower and upper limits also seem to be regulated separately. So they aren't even regulated from the same system. A little bit more on genetics. Like they said, genetics are likely involved, but how important is very much up for debate. For example, do you want to guess, Jen, how many actual genes they found that are considered to be obesogenic genes, so genes that are going to presumably likely make you obese. Oh, Lord, I could never guess. Yeah, I've, I have no way to guess that one. 19, and they're rare. So given the prevalence of the obesity epidemic, it doesn't seem to be 
completely genetic. (laughs) As far as the genetic risk associated with genes and weight gain, it tends to be about 3.8 kilograms, which is around 8.3 pounds. And again, given our obesogenic society, eight pounds compared to what many people experience with obesity, the takeaway from that again is that, you know, you know, genetics are a factor, but they don't seem to be at all the dominating factor with the set point and with weight gain. Well, because if we were all eating, you know, real food and the way people ate, you know, a thousand years ago, we wouldn't be gaining all this weight. It's how their bodies are responding to the current the current culture and firestorm of, yeah, like it's like the perfect storm of, you know, we're killing our gut microbiome, which affects us. We're, it's all these things working together. It's not just like one thing, like, oh, you got fat genes. No, it's, it's, it's all these things, these tendencies as a whole. Exactly. And that was one of their main takeaways was that the environmental factors most likely override all the biological factors. They even went so far as to say that it's not relevant in an obesogenic environment. Like the idea of a set point is not relevant because the culture is so... Well, yeah, because I think we turned them off. Like even if we had a set point with the whole, you know, ultra processed foods and destroying your gut microbiome, you know, taking all these antibiotics and now you have, you know, trouble, all sorts of problems, toxins everywhere it's like the natural mechanisms are, are are no longer even can work because they're trying to keep you alive. They're like, we got to store all this away because of this toxins going on. And so you just store more than you ever would. And not to mention the hyperpalability of food. Like food is – the food we eat today is basically like fat storage. We say fat bombs in the keto world, but fat storage bombs, like what we're eating and the hedonic situation, what it does to our appetite, our insulin, our inflammation is just – they were talking about in the study about leptin and insulin resistance. So basically just the culture honestly probably trumps any sort of concept of set point, I think. So I think set point actually would actually become more relevant in a situation like intermittent fasters where we are consciously making changes in our diet and our lifestyle to go back to that fat burning state, go back to that supportive metabolism. And then I think actually set point would become more relevant because we are no longer engaging in these overwhelmingly, this onslaught of factors that make things, in their opinion, like I said, irrelevant. Something fascinating they said was, I found this absolutely fascinating. So they said that culturally, so like the normal person in the everyday culture with this quote set point, it seems to be very loose in response to overfeeding, i.e. it's, you know, pretty easy to gain weight, but it's very tight with weight loss. So it's very hard to gain weight. But in clinical studies where they actually are putting people, you know, tightly controlling their calorie intake, like in a award type situation, that is actually the reverse, that weight loss is faster, but gaining weight is slower. I found that absolutely fascinating. So say that again, the, the weight loss is... So in culture, like for everyday people, the set point seems to be in favor of like it, it's very hard to lose weight, but it's easy to gain weight. But the exception is if they put people in calorie controlled, like metabolic ward studies, where they're they have no choice but to follow, you know, this diet. It's actually the reverse. It's harder to make people gain weight than to lose weight. People lose weight faster in that situation. Fascinating. So I I thought that was really fascinating. Another factor at play that 
we haven't discussed even is adaptive thermogenesis. So that's, you know, your metabolism changing. So it's unclear what's affecting that. They also had a whole section of physical activity, which I absolutely loved (laughs) because it said a lot of things supportive of things we've talked about on this podcast. And I think how people kind of go crazy with physical activity. So being very sedentary, it doesn't downregulate energy intake. So if you sit around all day, you're still going to be just as hungry, unfortunately. On the flip side, physical activity does improve feelings of satiation and increases energy expenditure. So moving around is actually going to likely make you feel fuller when you eat, which is awesome, and also increases your metabolism. So I find that very supportive of, you know, during your fast, moving around, staying active. All that said, they did note that the curve is J-shaped. So if you picture a J, just picture a J in your head, um, that's what it looks like. And basically what that means is that, you know, like a little bit of physical activity at that beginning of that J loop, at the, it's like low on um, where it's low. That's really great. Sorry, the J shape would be in relation to your energy intake. So when you're having a little bit of physical activity is great, supports metabolism, decreases satiety, but the more and more physical activity you do, it actually plateaus and then can result in reduced energy expenditure. So basically going too hard with the physical activity might actually be counterproductive. And they even noted that physical activity, when they add it into studies for obesity, they don't see much benefit. You know, the dietary changes seem to trump the physical activity. So yeah, their their takeaway was basically, there's definitely something going on. Like our body is definitely aware of our weight and is trying to have some sort of control over it. But A, we don't know what's defining that. We don't know what factors are influencing that specifically. We know one thing. We know environment is probably making it almost irrelevant unless you subscribe to the thesis that we just discussed that, you know, putting your body into a an inter- intermittent fasting type pattern, I think could be a way to go back to that natural set point. And then I agree with what everything you said earlier, Jen, that I think you can lower your body's perceived set point. And I think it, they said something vaguely about that in the study. I, they didn't say it like specifically, but they did say something about maintaining a lower weight for an amount of time. Yeah. I've seen that thrown around before. Just if you can, if you can lose the weight and maintain it, it gets easier to maintain it over time. Like that becomes a quote new set point. Yeah. And I, I agree with that completely. One thing I absolutely loved that they said, so they did have a little section on BMI the words they used to describe BMI were, quote, irrelevant and, quote, unacceptable. BMI itself? Our current concept of BMI, like evaluating health and evaluating our biological bodies by a BMI of height and weight. They said that that, it, that, that doesn't say, it says nothing. They said, um, basically, when it comes to, especially on the lower side of BMI, if it comes to like malnutrition or something like that, that it shouldn't be about BMI at all, that it should be about muscle wasting. So sarcopenia, what is your muscle level, not your BMI? And then also, was there a rapid wasting disease? So did you lose a drastic amount of weight in a very short amount of time? That those were indicators of malnutrition and problems in the body, not BMI. So this is for people on the low side of things with BMI. I think it can be very refreshing for people to know that I honestly still think I think it is. I think it's very interesting that BMI is so subscribed to, even in like conventional medicine, as like an indicator of weight, because people can be, you know, 
all different compositions, all different types of health at different BMIs. Yeah. Like like weightlifters and athletes are, you know, obese and some, <laughs> you know, because they have so much muscle and clearly they're not obese. I find that very shocking that it's actually still such a huge indicator of quote health when there's so much more going on, but it's like just a down and dirty easy. It's so easy. That's the problem. You know, it's like you you can calculate it in one second and that's the issue. It's so easy, but it says nothing about your body composition. Exactly. So yeah, there's a lot there. I know that was quite a lot for Kat's question, but basically Kat, to address what you were asking, because she was saying, you know, should she use, she doesn't want to use set point as like an, an excuse to not, you know, lose weight or something. Exactly. I, I think, um, I think you can know that I, in the one hand, I think set point, it, it's not like our body is trying to lock us into an unhealthy state. You know, it's trying to keep our body in a state of homeostasis and in a state where it perceives ample nutrition and the ability to reproduce. So I think regardless of set point, following something like an intermittent fasting pattern where you're supporting your health, you're providing adequate nutrients, you're down-regulating inflammation, burning fat in the fat-burning mode, I say throw set point out the window and and just know that you're making beneficial changes with your body and don't feel like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to be below a certain weight because I have this predetermined set point because I, I personally don't think that that's the case. So any thoughts, Jen? Good point. That was a, a good ending for that very complicated topic. Yep. So we had about 10 questions in the lineup and we got to one. <laughs> I think it's nice to dive deep into some of these topics. I think so too. And and to, the thing that always blows my mind is when you realize so many of the things that we throw around as like fact are really not as understood as we like to think they are. And when you start digging into the science, you realize that. These ideas just... It's like we have all these things just accepted as true, but are they true? I don't know. I encourage everybody to question everything. And all that said, and I know I just said a lot about studies and what researchers find, listen to your body. (laughs) You know, find what works for you because it's going to tell you a lot more than I think a scientific paper can. Right. Very true. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. Like I said, we are a Himalaya partnered show. You can definitely follow us in the Himalaya app for 24 hour in advance access. And you can follow our playlist, Intermittent Fasting Podcast Stuff We Like to get access to all of the podcast episodes that we like. You can also submit your own questions for the podcast. You can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, it would mean the world. If you'd like to write a brief review on iTunes, it helps more than you could ever know. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast, and you can follow us in Twitter. We are the IF Pod. All righty. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? I'm done. <laughs> Jen's in packing mode. Jen's like, can we now hang up so I can go pack? What am I going to go pack? Yeah. But then I also am tired of packing. So it's kind of that. Yeah, I hear you. It's like I need to just like not pack. Oh my gosh. I just, I'm really ready to start putting it away. That's what I'm excited about. I'm ready to get in there. And, you know, as I pack things, I'm like, where am I going to put all this? Where's it going to go? And I'm like thinking about it. What rooms is going to go in? I don't really know. So (sighs) I'm ready to get organized. I love to organize things though. So that should be so much fun. Yeah, me too. I love it. And you know how expensive it is because as soon as you start like, 
you realize a million things you need to buy. Yeah. It's crazy. Like to organize stuff or to put things away. You're like, oh, I need this kind of hook or I need this whatever. There's always so much more that you weren't expecting. Or like, oh, my towels now look so junky. I need to start over. (laughs) Did you ever listen to that book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, that I talked about? No, I've not listened. I've seen, what's her name? Condo. Yeah. mm -hmm. I saw, I haven't, I never listened to the book, no. But I did watch a couple of episodes of her Netflix show that came on, I guess, after the new year. But that was all I needed. Like a couple of episodes. I'm like, all right, thank you. (laughs) Well, if you want something to listen to while moving, it's the most epic motivation. The whole sparking joy. Does it spark joy? And then I need to thank the things for being in my life and that, that sort of thing. Like basically just getting rid of everything. Yeah, I don't want to get rid of everything because things I like, you know, things spark joy, like my grandmother's silver punch balls. Well, that's her thesis. I know, I know. But I don't want to ask every possession if it sparks joy. Oh, you don't ask every possession. It's just the ones that you're on the fence about. Because sometimes you just need some tissue paper and you just, you know, have your stash of tissue paper. (laughs) But no, I have gotten rid of a lot. I got rid of a lot of stuff and I'm really good at getting rid of things. So uh, it may sound like I'm not, but I'm actually really, really good at it. And the person who's not good at it is my husband. Like I was looking for something over in his closet area today and I found something I tried to put on the street like six months ago and it's in his closet. He saved it away and stashed it. I'm like going to try to like throw it away again and see if he notices. My parents are the exact opposite. My dad gets rid of everything. Like things will go missing because he just threw it away. My mom keeps everything. So um, yeah, I'm good at getting rid of things. I'm really, really good at getting rid of things. But I also like to have, you know, six sets of china. Yeah. Because sometimes I might want to use the Blue Willow, and then I might want to use the Fiesta Ware. And this one's going to look really good on white dishes. And today we're using Sterling flatware that I inherited. And But tomorrow, I mean, you know, that's the way I, I like to set a pretty table and use certain glassware with certain plates. And so <laughs> I'm definitely not a minimalist, but I am also don't just keep stuff just to have it. Like I'm down to one crock pot finally. You know, I don't need three, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was actually, the, I think, the biggest like life-changing takeaway I took from that book was use the nice stuff. Like we have this stuff that we're like, oh, this is special, so I'm going to save it for special times and, you know, so then you stick it in a cupboard and use it once when you could be using it every day and feeling amazing. Yeah, so that was a really great takeaway was – Use the nice things. So after that, I started, I had these like special plates that made me super happy and were really nice and, you know, glasses. And now I use all of that. <laughs> Instead of buying cheap plates and things like that, I use, I use the stuff that makes me happy. So use the good stuff. All right. Well, I wish you happy packing and I will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.